If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and Other Curious Questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com. Welcome to this week's podcast. On Facing the Canon, we welcome back John Lennox, Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University and an apologist. Professor John Lennox, welcome back to Facing the Canon. Thank you. You've written how many books, John? Gosh, it's hard to say. I've written some maths books, so we'll discount them. There are two of those. I think it must be around 20. Well, I think I've read 10 of those. Yeah. And one of my favourites, John, has to be, can science explain everything? So can we start with that question then, John? Of course we can. Can science explain everything? Well, the answer to it is no. That's the brief answer to it. Explanation. What do we mean by an explanation? We want to understand something. And these days, it's very common for people to espouse what we call technically scientism, which is saying science can indeed explain everything. But it ought to be obvious that that just doesn't work. Einstein was very clear on this, and he was a very bright scientist, one of the brightest there's ever been. And he put it this way, he said, you can talk about the ethical foundations of science, but you cannot talk about the scientific foundations of ethics. In other words, science doesn't give you answers to the ethical questions. Now, if we want to probe that a little bit further, Let's ask ourselves, what is science? Now, that's not so easy as you might think. And philosophers have rather given up defining science. We, we rather say there are certain things that we associate with science. That is, setting up hypotheses, testing them by doing experiments, refining those hypotheses, developing theories, and all this kind of thing. And generally speaking, we're trying to answer the question, how does something work? Or why does something function as it does? But there is a third question, and that's the why of purpose. Now, people like Richard Dawkins say that it's a non-question, but most people think it's a very genuine question. They want to know not only how things are made and why they function as they do, but what they're for. And so, if we begin to distinguish between those two, science, a set of intellectual disciplines that's geared to studying the world around us, the universe around us, doesn't tell us the purpose of things. And it doesn't tell us the ethics of things. And that is very important. And the greatest scientists realize that. I think perhaps it's best put in the words of a Nobel Prize winner, Sir Peter Medawar, a very distinguished scientist who has buildings named after him in Oxford and so on. 
And he said it's very easy, and I'm paraphrasing, it's very easy to see that science doesn't deal with all of reality because it cannot answer the simple questions of a child. Where do I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? And he himself pointed out you had to turn to literature and philosophy, and of course I'd want to add theology, to answer those questions. The biggest questions to which we want answers, the why, especially when they're whys about personal existential experience, science doesn't answer them. And as someone put it, you know, science can tell you that if you put arsenic in your granny's tea, it will give her a pretty rough time. (laughs) But science won't tell you if you should do it or not. Yes. So the whole ethical dimension, questions of love, And above all, I suppose, encompassing those questions of meaning, science doesn't deal with. We've got to look elsewhere. So that's the first point I'd make. But why why do people keep saying, John, uh, that science and faith are incompatible when there are so many scientists throughout history who, who were practicing Christians as you are? Why do people keep saying these statements? Because they don't understand science and they don't understand faith and they don't know about history. You see, let's take the Nobel Prize for Physics. It was won some years ago by a Scotsman, Peter Higgs, the Higgs boson. Now, Peter Higgs is an atheist. And before that, there there is an American physicist who won it, and he's a Christian. Now, here are two people at the very top level of science. What divides them is not their science. But one's a Christian, one's an atheist. What divides those two people is their world view. And I say to people, look, it's not science against Christianity. It's a clash, a very real clash. But it's a clash between worldviews, the worldview of atheism and the worldview of Christian theism, say. And there are scientists on both sides. So the real question you need to ask is, does science point towards God or does it point towards atheism or is it neutral? But this idea that science and religion are essentially at war is, is nonsense. But to probe a bit more into your question, This idea that you've got science here and faith there is simple nonsense because faith in the Christian sense is evidence-based. We respond to evidence. I I wouldn't sit here for a, a nanosecond if I didn't believe that my commitment to Christ was evidence-based. I believe he rose from the dead and and so on. That's crucially important. But also, as a scientist, I believe that the universe is mathematically intelligible. Science doesn't give me that. I bring that to science. So here we have a huge confusion. Faith is essential to science, and the faith that Christ requires is evidence-based. Now that brings me to a third thing, and it's this. People get confused, and they think that science is coextensive with rationality. Now that is nonsense. And I say that advisedly. Look, if science explained everything and was coextensive with reality, you'd have to shut half the faculties in any school, college, or university. There'd be no history. 
there'd be no linguistics, there'd be no literature, there'd be no languages, there'd be no philosophy, there'd be no theology if science explains everything. Now, think of history. History is a rational discipline, but it's not natural science. Yes. Now, the problem comes, it's very interesting linguistically, in German, the word for science in general is Wissenschaft. And they distinguish between Naturwissenschaft, which are the natural sciences, and Geisteswissenschaft, those are the humanities. Now, in English, we don't do that. We don't have Wissenschaft, that is science, and both. We have science, which means the natural sciences, and excludes the humanities. But the humanities are equally rational. So there's partially a linguistic confusion there. And in a sense, it's easier to explain to yourself in German than it is in English. And we must insist that when we go beyond science, we're not going beyond rationality. But many of today's leading intellectual atheists believe that we are going beyond rationality, which is sheer nonsense. Now, John, you know, many of our viewers um, are in the workplace. Yes. And they're relating to colleagues and neighbours and family and friends, and they're trying to engage them. Um, about the gospel, about Christianity. And uh, one of the, the biggest hindrances I think many of us Christians find is how, how can we believe in a God of love if there is so much suffering in the world? How do you answer that question? Well, that's the hardest question we face, the absolutely hardest question. And my first response to it is to say, I have no simplistic answer to that question. I don't even like to talk in terms of answer, but I think there's a way into it. There's a way of thinking about it that can bring peace to many people. Now, this is complicated. And it's one of the reasons I wrote my little book, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? Because that has raised this question acutely for many, many people. And many of my friends whom I respect, I understand why people become atheists. You know, I've been to Auschwitz quite a few times and I've never not wept there. Yeah, likewise, I did too. This is the hard, gut-wrenching problem. But let's look at it then. First of all, there are two sources for pain and evil. There's what we call moral evil, the bad things people do to each other. And then there's what we sometimes call natural evil, which is a strange thing. And and that is things like coronavirus, tsunamis, earthquakes, cancers, all this kind of thing, where, as far as we know, human beings aren't directly involved. And that can be the more difficult problem. But secondly, and this is where my heart goes out to people, there are two viewpoints. It's one thing to be an oncologist treating a patient. It's another thing to be a 24-year-old mother who's just been told she's got an inoperable tumour. There's the inner perspective of the sufferer and there's the outward perception of the observer. And we got to deal with both. And the kind of questions that both of those sides raise can be very different. Now, 
the observers will ask the intellectual questions. How can you possibly reconcile this with the good God? But then I want to say, so you're an atheist then? Absolutely. I've given up on God. Many people have sat and told me straight, I've given up on God when I heard these various things. I said, it's evil, isn't it? Yes, it's absolute evil. Where do you get your concept of evil from? Yeah. Because look, uh, one of your fellow atheists is a man called Richard Dawkins. And he follows the atheism down and he comes to the conclusion, this universe is just as you'd expect it to be. If at bottom there's no good, no evil, no justice, DNA just is and we dance to its music. But I said, look, I'm puzzled. If there's no good and no evil, why are you talking about a problem of evil? You've actually got rid of moral concepts. And I said, that bothers me. Because I find myself to be a moral being. So does Dawkins, actually. I find my heart crying for justice. Are you really telling me there's no justice? Now, you will respond to me, but you believe in God. How can you possibly do that? Well, let's come to that in a minute. But it seems to me it's no solution getting rid of the very concept that you're using to judge the problem. Secondly, on the atheist side, you think you've got rid of the problem. That's just the way the universe is. Let's face it, get real. But you have got rid of something. You've got rid of all hope. Atheism is a hopeless faith. And I say that to people directly. It is hope. You have no hope to offer to that young woman of 24 with a tumour. Absolute none. So that's a dead end. Atheism doesn't work. It gives you a kind of temporary satisfaction, but in the end, you have no hope. You have defined it out of existence conceptually, and you've no actual hope because there's no life after death. Now, I'm a Christian. How do I begin to square it? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, at the heart, and this is coming right to the heart of it directly, I depends on the person, of course, you want to engage gently with because people are hurting, their nerves are raw, they've lost a relative and all that. But I say, you know that at the heart of Christianity, there's a cross. That is suffering and extreme pain. Now, try and come with me, if you will. I know you might find this very difficult to accept, but the Christian claim is that the person on the cross was God incarnate. So if that is true, and just come with me, if that is true, we can legitimately ask, what is God doing on a cross, if I might put it that way? And surely, doesn't it show you that if that is so, then God has not remained distant from the problem of suffering, but has himself become part of it? Now, I think that's the beginning of a step, but it's not the final step. If God is like that, where can we find hope? Well, the next step is, the next big Christian claim is that God by his power raised Jesus from the dead so that death is not the end. That changes my whole universe. That changes everything. Because if that's true, it means that there is hope beyond the grave. And sometimes I risk telling them a personal experience. I say, you know, 
my sister had a 22-year-old daughter just married to a youth pastor in a church and she got a brain tumour that killed her. She held on to her faith in Christ. How did she possibly do that? It was a traumatic period for my sister and it took a long time to manage to come to terms, but she hasn't lost her faith either. Why? Because Jesus brings hope. He doesn't guarantee a release from the physical process of death, but what he does guarantee is a salvation that transcends COVID, transcends brain tumours, transcends death. Now, atheism can't offer anything like that. It doesn't mean we don't suffer, we don't have pain, but it means that we have a way in. So I don't give an answer, but I like to point people towards a person who I believe is the answer. Absolutely, John. And and the thing about Christianity, um, we as Christians, we would say that we know Christ and it's not just a head thing. But it's a heart thing. It's it's an actual experience, isn't it? Of yes, it knowing is. Ab- absolutely. Jesus. Absolutely. And you've known Jesus <laughs> growing up all your life and you're aware of his presence mm. in your life. Now this is this is crucially important. And one of the things is if I might share another actual directly personal experience absolutely. of that. You see, I've been very near to death. In fact, I got angina and suddenly the medics realised this was serious. And I can remember going to the hospital and listening to the junior doctor say, we're losing him. And I was rushed through the hospital and a heart attack on its way, clearly. And at the door of the operating theatre, I had to say goodbye to my wife it was quite clear that I was in a very serious condition. So I said goodbye to her. And what was absolutely amazing is was the sense of presence and peace, an absolute peace, because I knew I'd see her again, that the parting would only be temporary. So I was rushed into the theatre, thrown onto the table, and the surgeon put the thing into my heart and he says, the, the, the dye is going nowhere. And I said, what does that mean? He, he said, it means that one of the major arteries is blocked and we have to work fast. Dead silence for 40 minutes. And then he looked at me and he said, well, I don't know what to say to you. I said, why? He said, you should be dead. He said, you should have been carried away quite some time ago. And if you'd had the heart attack, you should have had you'd have less than 5% quality of life. But there's no damage, you can go home tomorrow. Now, you see, here's the issue. Of course I'm grateful to the Lord for that, for that experience of him doing his stuff, if you like, when I needed it. But at the same time, while I thank God for that, I've got to remember my sister. Yeah. You know, we, we, we live in this world of miracle and mystery, oh, don't yes, we? We do, absolutely. And you experienced the miracle. Yeah, I remember in Siberia, and we talked a little bit about that in the last program. Uh, in Siberia, I met a man, a tiny little man, and he was talking to me about his experience in the Gulag. Now, this is now moral evil. He's suffering because of other people. Years in solitary confinement because he taught young people scripture. 
And in our conversation, he looked up at me and he said, you know, you couldn't face that, could you? <laughs> I just crumpled. You couldn't face that, could you? I said, no, I couldn't. And he smiled. I could see his smile. He said, neither could I. And what I discovered, he said, is that God doesn't do his stuff in advance. He gives us the power to face this in the situation. And that has lived with me. And that's what Jesus said to the disciples. They'd be holed up in front of courts and so on when they didn't have time to prepare. Of course, we should always prepare if we have time, but when they didn't have time, it shall be given you by God's Spirit. And I believe that absolutely is the case. So I think, and there's a lot more that could be said, but there is enough in the New Testament that shows that its writers were very aware of this question. And in particular, in the story of Mary, Martha and Lazarus, where we see this question very clearly focused, there's enough of an answer for me to trust it. And you know, my last point on this is this. We've argued, and people have argued, especially students, why doesn't a good God do this? Couldn't a good God have made the world differently and so on? Of course he could. He could have made the world full of robots, no sin, nothing. But then there, you wouldn't be in it. I often say to people, if you want a world like that, you wouldn't be in it. Because in order to have a world in which people can love and have all the valuable things, then you've got to have a certain amount of freedom that you can learn to trust and, and so on. It's one of these big questions. So I said, since we can never answer this question philosophically, being a mathematician, I try to ask another question. So what's the other question? I said, it's equally difficult, but it gets you further. What's the question? We've got to face, when we come to this question that you've asked me, we've got to face the fact that there's a mixed picture out there. I call it beauty and barbed wire. Beauty and bombs. You look at the stars at night, you watch a COVID ward on television when you come indoors. It's a mixed picture. And any worldview worthy of the name has got to face that. Now I said, let's grant it's like that. So here's my big question. Granted that it's like that, is there any evidence anywhere that there is a God that we could trust with it? And I see that God in the life, death and resurrection yeah. of Christ. And that's the heart of the Christian Absolutely message. Absolutely the heart of the Christian faith. And because Christianity has something credible to say about this, that's one of the main reasons I'm a believer. Now, a lot of people, John, have misunderstandings as to what does it actually mean to be a Christian. How would you explain that? What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is a person who enjoys now a real relationship with God through Christ, through trusting him, that he or she has not merited. And this is one of the huge confusions of our day. They think of Christianity as a religion. And if you ask them, what is a religion? They'll say a religion is a path. You try and follow it. And you hope that when you get to the judgment, you'll have done enough for God to accept you. That's religion. Well, if it is religion, that's not Christianity. Christianity turns that on its head. It's utterly revolutionary because it tells me that I can't make it that way. 
I can't earn God's forgiveness. But God has done something in Christ on the cross, the resurrection, that he can offer me forgiveness as a free gift on the basis of my trusting him and giving my life to him. I cannot merit it. And you know, (laughs) I often explain it this way. I say, you know, we ought to understand this. We live in a merit-based society. Universities, you get a degree, but you're not guaranteed one because it depends on your merit, everywhere merit, promotion merit, all this kind of thing. So we think that we can merit God and a relationship with him, but just a minute. What about marriage? And I sometimes say, jokingly, I say, you know, I met a, a young lady when I went to Cambridge and I thought, She'd make a good wife. So I I brought her a cookbook and I said to her, you know, do you see this cookbook? There are various laws on how you make apple cake. I like apple cake. So if you keep these rules um, pretty well, pretty nearly 100% for the next 40 years, I'll accept you. Otherwise, you can go back to your mother. And, you know, audiences roar at this. Of course. They absolutely roar. And... I say, why are you laughing? Isn't that exactly your attitude towards God? You wouldn't insult a fellow human being Mm. by telling them that your acceptance of them depends on their performance. But that's exactly what you're basing a relationship with God on. What would you say, John, to people who've got many questions, but they're very curious about Jesus Christianity, what advice would you give them to make a progress in their journey of faith? Well, I would say that the first thing is that we need to get to know who Jesus is before we can make any decisions. So we need to get into reading about him in the New Testament. We need to get into scripture. Now, of course, it's ideal if we can do that with someone else. And there are many very good programs. There's the word one-to-one, there's Christianity Explored and so on. And many churches put on programs like that. You see, very often I feel people just don't know what's an offer. And I say to them, look, listen for a little while till you hear what Christ offers you before you say no to it. And, And so it's very important to do that in reading, say, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Mark, and ask your questions of the text. It's quite clear from the Gospel that Jesus invited questions and the disciples weren't shy of asking them. The second thing is, Get a hold of Christians that you find credible and ask them. Really push them hard as to why they believe what they believe. And I am firmly convinced that if we seek with that attitude of being open to take the steps of commitment that are justified by what we know and what we've seen, those that seek will really find they'll have an encounter because God is real. You see, I often say to folks, God is not a proposition, he's a person. So we're getting to know a person. Now, when we get to know 
our fellow human beings, we take in evidence from all sorts of directions. So let's do exactly the same thing. Let's read, let's listen, let's search the internet. Let's read about other people and how they found their journey and how they came to a commitment in Christ. And I do believe that God will answer us according to the need we have of the different kinds of basis for that commitment. Absolutely. John, always a delight to see you and talk with you. Thank you so much for being on Facing the Canon. Well, thank you for being such a, an impressive canon. <laughs> I hope that's inspired you. Uh, Professor John Lennox has written so many helpful uh, books and I would encourage you to look at his website and uh, read some of them. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and Other Curious Questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com.